Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Nyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. This is Inkstained Wretches. What do we do here? Why, I'm glad you asked. We break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. And Eliana Johnson, I'm here to tell you, it doesn't get nicer than this. This is the, I go back and forth, is the spring weather or the fall weather better? But whatever it is, today is the most glorious kind of autumn day here in the mid-Atlantic. And I hope you are enjoying it. I am enjoying it, but the news is tough and detracting from my enjoyment. Well, take heart in this fact. Today is, we are recording this on the 13th birthday of my youngest man-child. And the hope for the future remains strong. All right. So what are you guys doing to celebrate? Go to his favorite restaurant for dinner, give him some stuff, kick it. I'm, I'm a big believer that birthdays should be celebrated on the birthday and that you should not celebrate the birthday at a day convenient, but you should make the most out of the celebration on the day when the birthday falls. So what's his favorite kind of food? Pasta. He's an Ita- he, he loves Italian okay. food. He loves pasta. I know the other one is a big Korean aficionado. He likes Korean food. He likes whatever, but the, my youngest son likes noodles and has since he was very little. And so we will, he, I, I already know exactly. He, he is like his father. When he finds something he likes, he gets it over and over again. So he knew what you, a Steyerwalt rule is you get to pick dinner on your birthday, no matter what. And I knew what he would pick and I know what he will order when he gets there. Well, I hope you guys have a wonderful time. Totally. Please wish him my best. I will pass along your your wretchiest regards. And I think he shares a birthday then either today. No, I think it was, I guess, yesterday with our with our friend Matthew Continetti's daughter. Oh, that's excellent. These are all. Must high, have been yesterday. People are saying some of the best people are born in late October. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I don't know how long it's going to be that our front page is Israel and its war on Hamas, but probably uh least for another few weeks. I actually just read this morning Graham Wood's piece in The Atlantic. He was among the journalists in Israel on a military base in around Tel Aviv that the that the IDF summoned to watch a 40 plus minute video of Hamas footage that they put together for a room of journalists. They did not allow cell phones or any other kind of devices in the room, but they played for journalists the unspeakable horrors that were captured by Hamas's own terrorists. And reading this piece, I thought it would be quite hard to capture what it was like to be in that room and the sorts of things they saw. They record it. Graham Wood writes that people were gagging and emotional, obviously, but I thought he did a really wonderful job of it. And he also writes about the IDF's thinking behind showing it. So 
I wanted to point to that piece. And Wood writes this in the first person. And he says, to me, the most disturbing section was not visual at all. Like the clip of the father and his boys hunted in their pajamas. That's something he writes about earlier. It was upsetting in part because it showed a relationship between parent and child. The clip is just a phone call placed by a terrorist to his family back in Gaza. He tells his father that he's calling from a Jewish woman's phone. The phone recorded the call. He tells his father that his son is now a hero and that, quote, I killed 10 Jews with my own hands. And he tells his family about a dozen times that they should open up WhatsApp on his phone because he has sent photographs to prove what he has done. Put on mom, he says. Your son is a hero. His parents, I noticed, are not nearly as enthusiastic as he is. I believe that the mom says praise be to God at one point, which could be gratitude for her son's crimes or pure reflex indicating her loss for words to match her son's unspeakable acts. They do not question what their son has done. They do not scold him. They tell him to come back to Gaza. They fear for his safety. He says amid rounds of Allahu Akbar that he intends victory or martyrdom, which the parents must understand means he will never come home. From their muted replies, I wonder whether they also understand that even if he did come home, he would do so as a disgusting and degraded creature and that it might be better for him not to do so. And then Wood gets to the IDF's thinking and writes, Edelstein said that the IDF chose to show the footage out of necessity. It is not every day that snuff films of Jews are shown at an IDF screening hall. What we shared with you, Edelstein said, searching for words, you should know it. And he said he struggled to understand how some journalists could present the IDF and Hamas as comparable. This footage would refute that false equivalence. We are not looking for kids to kill them, he said. We have to share it with you so no one will have an idea that someone is equal to another. It was very powerful and, and very powerfully written. It was, took a lot of skill to write that piece. And the plain language referring to terrorists as terrorists is something that we're not seeing from a lot of news organizations. And I thought it was really, really excellent. Well, it's, it's been interesting to see for me, you want to go highbrow at the Atlantic, you go lowbrow to Joy Behar going off on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and saying she lies like Donald Trump for some of the claims that that Cortez has been making. And I think we're, and we're going to delve into more of this, but the, this conflict has laid bare in the media a lot of things that were under the surface, right? It, it has brought these conflicts to the fore and sort of the fundamentally irresolvable conflict divisions that exists here. And it's really hard for people to struggle with. And I, you will not get to hear me this say this every day. Good for Joy Behar and good for The Atlantic. The, we talked last week about the New York Times's and, and virtually every other mainstream media organization coverage of the alleged Israeli bombing of a hospital in Gaza that was what we know now in reality, a botched Islamic jihad bombing of a parking lot um, next to that hospital in Gaza. And the New York Times, unlike a lot of other uh, organizations that ran with that claim, has now printed an editor's note. And the Times writes, given the sensitive nature of the news during a widening conflict and the prominent promotion it received, this was the banner piece on the Times's website for several hours, Times editors should have taken more care with the initial presentation and been more explicit about what information could be verified. Newsroom leaders continue to examine procedures around the biggest breaking news events, including for the use of the largest headlines in the digital report to determine what additional safeguards may be warranted. What say you? Let's. Well, I wanted to pair this with Vanity Fair's piece 
inside on on the battle inside the New York Times around this and Vanity Fair reports will link this inside the New York Times debate over its Gaza Gaza bombing coverage. Vanity uh, Fair reports that several people did flag that this headline and the piece were problematic. A junior reporter for The Times who has been covering the conflict for the paper from Jerusalem chimed in better to hedge referring to the headline. The exchange took place in a Times Slack channel and notes that a senior editor on the international desk wrote in the same Slack channel, the headline on the homepage goes way too far. Good for the Times for printing an editor's note. However, the Times also printed a photograph that was not of this hospital that was extremely misleading and their note did not address that. And then the note, of course, sort of dances around this issue that underneath this botched report are the ideological biases and predilections of the reporters covering this conflict. And I think until the Times is able to grapple with the ideologies at work in its news place, these sorts of mistakes will continue to happen, is my view. I I see a lot of parallels with the post-George Floyd coverage that we saw, which is, so if you are a moral imbecile and if you take a very simplistic view of the world, right? So if you come to a conclusion that Israel is bad, right? So you you have learned in college or you've heard from your family or you've concluded yourself that Israel is bad and should not exist. And you've looked at the 1947 maps and you you've you've come to this conclusion that the foundation of Israel now two or three generations ago uh, is is bad. You are not going to be equipped to have a discussion about the world as it exists and Hamas as it exists. And I see with Israel a parallel to the way people were talking about the police after George Floyd. Defund the police. We're gonna, the, we, we've got to radically rethink how we're approaching the, you know, the real problem here is the police and all of that stuff. And things are complicated and things are hard, but Israel is, right? Israel is a big, for the region, populous, wealthy, thriving, democratic country. That's what it is. And it's not going away. And much like the police, they serve an important purpose also in the region. And if you're a reporter and you're covering matters like these, and you are rooted in a dorm room, bong smoke kind of thinking about the world, you that was not Eliana on the bong. If you are, <laughs> if you are rooted in, in the kind of moral imbecility and simplistic thinking, you will not be equipped to cover these matters. Well, that rules out pretty much, you know, 90, 98% of, uh, you know, mainstream media newsrooms. No, I think, I look, I think that, I think there's, we, we, we shared a lot of the good stories last week and I certainly agree that there, the, the, there's tons of problems, but (laughs) I would generally say that the overall tone and certainly in the aftermath of the many errors around the explosion at the hospital, near the hospital. Uh, I'm, the, the grade isn't, isn't a, a perfect grade, but it, I, maybe I will give the U.S. media a passing grade. I would not go that far. I, there is far too much focus in the 
press and and that's reflective of the focus in the Biden administration on the humanitarian conditions in Gaza in a way that there was not. You know, the first question after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan after 9-11 was not, what about the civilians there? Like that sort of focus applies only ever when Israel fights a war. And, and, and the U.S. media plays into that. We'll get, we, I mean, we have more stories where I'll point this out and, and flag it, but that, that really riles me. It is not a level playing field for Israel in this conflict um, in terms of the media. But I should say the, the IDF's decision to screen that video, I think, is indicative of their realization that they have been on the back foot in terms of communications in previous wars, and they are working to change that. And that was, you know, a conscious decision, and I think a good one on their part. That that is paying dividends. Well, the the next item is some good industrious reporting, right? I agree. So I flagged this because we said we were going to come back. I believe two weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal reported that Iran had greenlighted the. October 7th Hamas attacks in Israel that they had been planned in Hamas leaders had planned them with Iran, Iranian officials through a series of meetings in Beirut. And that reporting was, I won't say contradicted, but the New York Times had a piece that said, you know, American officials say they know nothing about this. They have seen no intelligence that corroborates this. And we talked about that at the time, saying that that reporting reporting sounded like water caring for the Biden administration. So the journal earlier today, and we're recording on Wednesday, is out with a new report. Hamas fighters tra- trained in Iran before October 7th attacks. Roughly 500 Palestinian militants got specialized combat instruction at Iranian facilities as recently as September. And the journal reports that senior Palestinian officials and Iranian Brigadier General Esmail Kwani, the head of the Quds Force, also attended. The sourcing on this is pretty vague. They cite people familiar with intelligence related to the assault. And once again, the American officials say they haven't seen this, they can't corroborate it. So again, putting this down as a marker, and we will come back to it. But a very interesting report. Well, and and well done and good on the Wall Street Journal for continuing to hustle this out and advancing stories is good. This is good. Now, our next story could definitely also be facile files. This this one just delighted me. It's at cnn.com and it's it's a it's a beauty. The writer is Nathaniel Meyerson. And the headline, Harvard and UPenn Donor Revolt Raises Concerns About Big Money on Campuses. And the, the premise is, and this is something we talked about last week, where you have people who are big donors to these institutions who were just furious about either neutrality or pro-Palestinian or the the countenance of anti-Zionist protests or whatever. And the donor said, if you don't clean up your act, we're going to take our money away. And this piece is 
it imagines somehow. So the the premise of the piece basically is, and I'm I don't want to put words in the writer's mouth, but it's basically because the federal government will not give universities all of the money that they need, the universities are dependent on donors. And that these donors want things in return. Can you imagine that these donors want things in return? If you give a billion dollars to a school, that you would want things in return. And it's just it's talk about dorm room kind of thinking. This this is just a just a chef's kiss of facileness right here in one story. Well, what was so amazing is that the story that the reporter writes, well, tensions over free speech aren't limited to colleges. Higher education experts worry that the donor backlash could have a chilling effect on ideological diversity on campus and at institutions designed to serve as hubs for freedom of expression and debate on opposing viewpoints. Oh, yeah. Campuses are so ideological ideologically diverse and they're really excelling at being hubs of you know debates for opposing viewpoints. I mean, what a joke. Here's a quote. And beyond that, here's a, here's a quote from James Finkelstein, Steen, a professor emeritus at of public policy at George Mason University. It may be more likely that presidents, provosts and deans would be reluctant to hire faculty whose views are at odds with major donors. You think? Do you think Professor Emeritus Finkelstein that they might want to curry favor with the, of course they do. That is obviously the idea. In fact, people endow chairs. They put their names on the chair because they want to bring viewpoints onto campus. And I will further tell you, Professor Emeritus Finkelstein, that usually what is happening or often what is happening is that in monocultures, intellectual monocultures, where viewpoint diversity is not a real thing, Rich alumni say, I'm sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of the institution that I support only mouthing one worldview. And I'm going to give you money and you're going to you're going to make this person a tenured professor so that they will be there to bring the opposing point of view. So far from a limiting points of view, I would submit that very often these gifts are encouraging viewpoint diversity. I also think it's important to note that many of these donors who have pulled their money, their complaints have not been over speech that's expressed. Certainly, they're troubled and disagree with students who have blamed Israel for the attacks or spoken up for Hamas. They're troubled by the lack of speech on the part of university leaders, or they disagree with what university leaders have said. One of the donors who said he will no longer give to UPenn explicitly said, I, I'm left wondering, what is it that you believe? Of course, you know, you can have anti-Semites to campus, but you guys don't even condemn them. You don't tell people where you stand. You stand silently by because you don't want to offend anybody. You know, these leaders are not are not putting a stake in the ground. It, it's very easy to say, like, sure, we have all sorts of people come on campus, but we're going to make clear, like, what our views are as leaders of this campus. And to me, like, that's been the frustration among donors. Not they're not they're not saying, like, expel all the kids and don't allow them to say these things. I was given cause to look back at the great, a great West, great West Virginian, Robert George of, of Princeton University and what he has had to say in the past about this matter. 
and about viewpoints and political posturing, not to be too pejorative, of the of <laughs> academic institutions. And to repeat something we said last week, don't get into the opi opinions are luxury items. Don't get into the opinion having business and then be surprised when it blows up on you. We went through a whole long series with corporations on this, right? Where corporations wanted to be, to use, to in the parlance of our time, be woke and take political positions. And then they found out, oh, this is actually terrible. So a, a word to the wise, choose the, the, the times that you're going to express institutional opinions wisely or expect this kind of catastrophe. All right. What do we have next? What here? we have Sorry. next? I'll tell you what oh. we have next, which is you oh. is the 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 fact that if you think that you're unhappy with the pro Hamas can't in much of the coverage, take a look over at the nation. Check it out. See what see what they're see what they're throwing down at the nation. The writer is named Jeet here. And headline, the fight over MSNBC's cave-in to Islamophobia. I didn't know. I was not I was not aware that that was going on. The writer... But did you actually know that's the hatred in the world we all need to be on watch for right now? The, the writer makes a couple of claims about things that MSNBC has done that I don't know that are necessarily true about whether or not, and I don't know the name, the Mehdi Hassan. I don't know what, I don't know what all is going on inside and I, and I don't claim to support or I don't co-sign the factual claims that the piece is making. But the idea, you know, when you talk about what's going on in the, in the mainstream media, what's going on in the Biden administration, what's going on is pressures like these, right? Extraordinary sensitivities and sort of wild claims of oppression are are right there. They're they're ready to go. And for the center left, that this is what they live in fear of all the time, is that people say, "Oh, you bigot! You're you're silencing. You're not putting these people on air." And here's here's a a, a a savory passage. Anyone familiar with the history of MSNBC would hesitate to give the network the benefit of the doubt on the issue. In February two thousand and three. In the prelude to the American invasion of Iraq, MSNBC fired Phil Donahue, at the time, the highest rated host of any show on the network. Now, is I, he Muslim? I, I, I got, I, I love historical precedent. I do a lot of historical precedent. But if you're bringing up Phil Donahue's, and by the way, the highest rated show on MSNBC in 2003 was not very many viewers. And it, it just, the idea that MSNBC is a stewing cauldron of Islamophobia tells you where the mindset of these folks is. Let me give like the two minute background to this, because uh, I have been following the reporting on this that came out of Semaphore. And it was there. There were questions around whether Eamon Moyheldine, the tendentious MSNBC broadcaster, correspondent, and Mehdi Hassan had been pulled off the air and they could not actually determine what was going on. Were they on the air? Were they off, off the air? Hassan has been on the air. But, you know, what's going on with these guys hours? Their report did not reach a conclusion. 
but the nation has reached a conclusion. And they and they write, the lesson is clear. Both the mainstream media and the Biden administration are all too likely to cave into bigotry unless they are faced with protests. Continued vigilance and opposition is the only way to contain a war fever that continues to threaten all humane and decent values. Good grief. Good gracious. Obvious. Good gracious. Well, if you think that is some some facileness, how about this New York Times headline sent to me by an alert reader? How the Israel-Hamas war imperils action against global warming. I didn't know. I didn't. I hadn't even thought about the impl- implications for global warming and how this war could disrupt those things. Now, I will say, I understand if I I cover politics, and if somebody says, "Hey, can you write us a piece about the effect that this war will have on U.S. politics?" Sure, you can do that. That's that's fine. And if your beat is to cover global warming. I, I understand, but talk about getting the cart before the horse. Talk about landing wrong-footed. The win- here's, this, here's the piece. The winner so far, the producers of weapons and to a lesser degree of oil. Defense stocks have rallied. Oil prices inched up. The historical echoes are chilling, coming 50 years after the Arab oil embargo roiled energy markets. That episode was provoked by the 1973 Arab-Israeli war. Biden administration officials are particularly nervous about oil. So far, energy has avoided a big supply shock, but it could see one if the conflict spreads to Iran or other major oil producers nearby. Now, I'm not an economist. Well, you know, Chris, like I know I know Israel wants to fight for its survival, but there are more important things like how this is going to affect the climate. U.S. Please. U.S. officials worry that erosion, that erosion would more than offset any climate gains from a temporary period of high oil prices like $5 a gallon gasoline, pushing more people to buy electric cars. Again, with climate coverage, the problem with $5 a gallon gasoline is that it crushes middle-class and working-class Americans. That's, that's your first problem, right? If we're talking about what, what is the significance of $5 a gallon gasoline, it isn't about the push to electric cars, and it isn't about the long-term strategy. It is right now, in real time, Normal human beings who do not have room in their budgets are facing the prospect of gas prices climbing above $4 again. It's just, it's, it's a great crystallization of how specialty journalism can put you into a bubble distantly removed from the concerns of a real shooting war and the plight of your fellow Americans. And a pogrom, an attempted genocide. Yeah. Speaking of global conflicts, CNN reports that a Russian court has extended the detention of a second American journalist. I'm going to butcher the name. Alsu Kermasheva. I'll take it. Pretty good, actually. Yeah, I think it was excellent. And CNN reports that Radio Free Europe said Kazan airport employees initially confiscated both of her passports. And soon after, she was fined for failing to register her American passport with the Russian authorities. Kermasheva was waiting for the return of her passports when new charges were announced on October 18th. Radio Free Europe said, adding that she was accused of refusing to register as a foreign agent. Kermasheva's lawyer was quoted by the independent Russian media outlet Soda Vision as saying she is not guilty and will appear 
And I should flag the other interesting CNN interview I saw this week was with the Russian, the detained Russian prisoner, Paul Whelan, who blasted the Biden administration's deal to bring home Brittany Griner that left him behind, saying that it had incentivized hostage taking. And that, that's what came to mind when I read this as well. And a good opportunity to think about the plight of Evan Gershkovitz, who is still imprisoned in Russia, an American journalist who is still imprisoned in Russia. And now there's another one. And just just that bit of a somber note from me, which is while we are focused on these other things, Russia continues its, its fundamental assault on press freedom and making U.S. journalists part of their war. And Whalen, we'll link that article, he said that he had spoken to Secretary of State Blinken and he says, I told him point blank that leaving me here the first time painted a target on my back and leaving me here the second time basically signed a death warrant. He said he told the top U.S. diplomat that unless they got me back, it could be quite challenging in the future, especially with my age and the sort of work we have to do from a health and safety point of view. Totally heartbreaking. Okay. As of this moment, as we are recording, I believe we have a new Speaker of the House. Nominee or Speaker? No, I think we have the vote. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure where we are so right now. Okay, I've never heard of this guy. You, you are not familiar with Mike Johnson of Louisiana? I am not familiar with Mike Johnson. Okay, so Mike Johnson is... So uh, here, well, let's, let's, let's start with the question of who does the media think Mike Johnson is? Here's a lead from NBC News. Well before he secured the GOP nomination for House Speaker, Representative Mike Johnson, our Louisiana, played a key role in efforts by then-President Donald Trump and his allies to overturn Joe Biden's electoral victory in the 2020 election. Johnson, who currently serves as the GOP caucus vice chair and is an ally of Trump, led the amicus brief signed by more than 100 House Republicans in support of a Texas lawsuit seeking to invalidate the 2020 election results in four swing states won by Biden, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Now, I believe one or the other of Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise said they wanted to sign it, but they didn't get it in time, but both supported it, right? One of them signed it and both said they supported it. And the question about Mike Johnson is, is he a phony, and I use the word in quotes, insurrectionist, or is he sincere? So basically, the only people that the House Freedom Caucus or the ra- the most radical members of the House Freedom Wait, you're right. He's he he made it. He made it. Congratulations. Breaking news as we record. Wow. Wretches break news. But the question basically is: nobody thought Steve Scalise or Kevin McCarthy wanted to really overturn, or I didn't really overturn the results of the 2020 election. Signing on to this lawsuit was something you could tell Trump, oh yeah, we're, we're working on, we're, you know, oh, they got us again, right? And that's what a lot of mainstream Republicans did. Try to play along with, oh, well, let, let's let the legal challenges work through. And we're, we're filing suits, figuring that eventually it would go away. And you contrast that with somebody like Jim Jordan, who I think was sincere, right? I think that Jim Jordan believed that the election was stolen, and wanted to steal it back, right? And whether that's 
dumb or crazy. I don't know, but uh, I think it was sincere. So basically, the coverage around Johnson has focused on this thing that brought him to prominence in the Republican conference, which was prominence is a generous word. Well, to whatever degree of prominence that he had previously enjoyed, which was he headed up this effort. Basically, he played a key role in doing this. So the Freedom Caucus guys think he they must think he means it. And the normies must think that he was cynical like McCarthy and Scalise. And now we get to find out he's a really unknown person. We don't know a great deal about him. He, we know he's very ambitious. He's relatively young. And we'll, we'll get to see. But there, uh, when, when they were announcing, we're recording this Wednesday, when they were announcing on Tuesday night at the press conference, what's the question? And by the way, a correct question for Mike Johnson is, did Joe Biden win the election, right? Like, it, that's, that's what we want to know. Did Joe Biden, do you think Joe Biden, it's not the only question for Mike Johnson, but it's, it's an important question. When a reporter was asking that, Congresswoman Fox from North Carolina is just yelling at her, shut up, shut up. And the Republicans are booing her, booing the reporter asking the questions. And you get in the coverage why this is the emphasis for people who are very concerned, reporters who are very concerned about what they see as the insurrectionist wing of the Republican Party. You also get why Republicans don't want to talk about that. There was one of the members behind her. Maybe we can play the clip. One of the members behind her shouts out, 2024, to say, We're, we don't want to talk about that anymore. And I wouldn't want to talk about that either. But we will now get to find out whether Johnson was cynical or sincere. And I think most Republicans probably hope that he was being cynical. Can we also, I mean, being speaker is like not, you know, not an easy job. Does this guy know anything about how to run the House, the Republican conference? Well, I I don't know what his relationship with Steve Scalise is like. They're both from Louisiana and there's some talk that there there's a rivalry. But he did climb the greasy pole to a leadership position in a relatively short period of time. And assuming, and this this comes down to the question, the original question, whose advice is he going to be taking? Because what the members of the Republican conference want from him is to protect them from bad votes or difficult votes and to raise a bunch of money. Now, I don't know how much money this guy that nobody's ever heard of is going to be able to raise going around the country with lots of doubts about the Republicans' ability to retain the House. But if he, well, I'll tell you how he could succeed. He could succeed in a sort of Dennis Hastert kind of way, which is to say, whatever the conference wants to do, that's what we're going to do. Majority rules, majority of the majority rules, and that's just what we're going to do and go forward. If he has a, a Jordanian kind of agenda, and wants to do big radical stuff, he will face trouble. Now, of course, as soon as that spending bill comes over from the Senate for funding Israel and Ukraine, and we're now a few weeks away from a government funding debacle, I, <laughs> I, I guess I would say to you, Speaker Johnson, good luck. We wish you the best. Chris, are we ready? Oh, we have a Biden item. Yes. 
Biden media item, the New York Times reporting that the Supreme Court has temporarily lifted the ban on Biden administration officials' contacts with tech platforms. And this ban was draconian and then partially lifted and now totally lifted by the Supreme Court as a trial awaits. However, it's not it's not good news for the Biden administration in that the the court does seem poised to find that the administration officials infringed on the First Amendment rights of the folks who brought this suit in leaning so hard on the tech companies to police speech around COVID. And the and the government, you know, the government has government officials can speak to and finding the balance here is difficult. But yes. Up next, we have 2024 items, starting oh, yeah. with former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows granted immunity to and tells the special counsel that he warned Trump about his that his 2020 claims were bananas. ABC News reports, and also Trump's former lawyer, Jenna Ellis. Noted fameball. Yeah, pleaded guilty. These are both in the Georgia RICO suit, but it does seem likely to me that 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 suit was the weakest of all these suits, but it is likely to bear on the January 6th federal suit for Trump. Because prosecutors will be able to point to Trump aides who have said now that they committed crimes. Yeah. And this also follows Sidney Powell entering into a plea agreement, too. And I, I include this here just so that we can put a little pin in this and check back, because this was a big scoop for ABC News. They're well-sourced in the Justice Department. This is a big scoop. And the story doesn't say that Meadows flipped on Trump, right? But you could read this if if you were not reading with a critical eye, you could say, "Oh, they're the, you know all the dominoes are falling, and they're all turning on Trump." We don't know that yet. And as we watched in the Mueller investigation, the rush to make assumptions about ah, well they've turned and this will happen next. We don't know. All, you know, Donald Trump came out hard against Mark Meadows and he's weak and all that stuff. And Mark Meadows is, you know, he's a goofus. And and much like Sidney Powell and what's her name? Ellis loved, obviously loved celebrity more than their work and liked being on television and liked being out in the limelight. But we don't know what they've really said about Trump and incriminating Trump. We know that they've incriminated themselves but we don't know whether what they've really said about Trump. So this is just, we'll check back, we'll see, but I would, I would urge caution and restraint when reading coverage about these things, about jumping to conclusions about what the implications are for Trump and what these folks have really said. Chris, I flagged this piece, which was in the Wall Street Journal's opinion section by Barton Swaim, but it is a reported opinion piece. And He went on the campaign trail with Ron DeSantis and came back with this report with the headline, DeSantis isn't at home abroad. The governor is strong on domestic policy, but is he up to the challenge of a suddenly menacing world? And I just thought this was a really prescient piece. Swaim writes, Mr. DeSantis is a gifted rhetorician. There are a few domestic policy questions on which he isn't prepared to give a coherent multi-part answer. 
Only on foreign policy does he rely on ham-fisted conventional wisdom talking points. And he writes about being in Rock Hill, South Carolina, I believe, and says, Mr. DeSantis was asked about aid to Israel. We support their right to defend themselves, he said, but it's their war. Not our, it's not our war. Part of what he meant was that the U.S. shouldn't contain Israel's response. He's right about that. But had he forgotten that Hamas murdered Americans on October 7th and that some of the hostages now held by Hamas are Americans? And he he notes DeSantis's difficulty in talking fluently about foreign policy. One thing I thought he he didn't get at was uh, and, and may not agree with that what is that I think. DeSantis is trying to triangulate between the party's isolationist wings and its hawkish wings and make everybody happy. And as a result, is constrained to this very narrow message um, where he can't really say much of anything. And that's what I actually think is happening here. But but what whereas the party's united on these questions of domestic policy, like, you know, the whole party's anti-woke, but there is real disagreement over foreign policy. And I thought the piece was quite good in hitting on this on this playing field has changed given this war in Israel for the Republican nomination. And I thought this was this was a perceptive piece. Well let me say Barton Swim is really, really good. He is the right now, I mean he's crushing it. He's been crushing it at the Wall Street Journal and he is really good. He has a really good ear and a really accessible writing style, and I enjoy his stuff enormously. I think we talked months ago about a, a piece he wrote about George Will that was just so good, and Swaim can be counted on to deliver the goods like these. I think Ronnie D did put himself in a pickle because he thought, okay, you guys want isolationism. All right, we're going to go after the Trump voters, and we're going to be isolationists. And we remember the Ukraine is a regional conflict line. And he lost half of his support, basically, and it went back to Trump because Trump, as Trump became more viable and the doubts about whether he would be able to win the nomination eased and he benefited from this incumbency effect and then DeSantis is just the imitator. And so why go for Trump light if you can just have Trump again? And that left DeSantis looking over his other shoulder and saying, okay, well, how do I unite this other side of the party? And as you say, one of the many divisions between, we can call them the nationalists and the conservatives at the opposing wings of the Republican Party, the traditional conservatives versus the MAGA folks, foreign policy is at the center of that. And one of the ways that Nikki Haley has been eating Ron DeSantis's lunch is she's got, she's got the resume and she's got the, the cred on this issue. And those conservatives know that she's hawkish on Ukraine, on Israel, on the on these questions. And this this poses a real problem for DeSantis, who did not ever anticipate making foreign policy a big part of his candidacy. Well, it it is reminiscent of George W. Bush. You know, it's like you don't plan for world events, but they come and find you. It's important. You know who is thinking a lot about foreign policy, Eliana? Deeply thinking about foreign policy all the time. That's Vivek Ramaswamy. He thinks about it a lot. He's got a lot of big ideas. So he thought maybe he would invite on his podcast, his little show, that he would invite another big thinker on foreign policy, Alex Jones. When they censor you and deplatform you, they can then steal your identity 
and misrepresent what you've said and done and then build a straw man and transferring the power themselves. That's the new world order. That's global. It's actually the old world order. It is. You're right. It's really just the old world order in new world clothing. Okay, Eliana Johnson, are you convinced? Are you do you, do you feel that Ramaswamy's got his finger on the pulse? Ramaswamy makes the mistake of thinking that simply because like that there is virtue in and of itself in having a fringe point of view or being on the fringe or being shunned by polite society. And many people who are sure, like maybe correct on things, but there's no inherent virtue in that. And I do feel like he often elevates the, you know, he makes a virtue out of that quality. Um, And it's, it's stupid. Well, I will further say, that if you ever wondered what Vivek Ramaswamy was doing in the race, he has now told us because having a execrable human being like Alex Jones, who was who who smeared the families of Sandy Hook and who traffics in the worst, worst kind of garbage, having him on to try to get attention and have a bigger, you know, he uh, Ramaswamy's like Ted Cruz, right? He wants to have a successful podcast. He wants to he wants to be a media figure. He wants all of these things. And his thirst, his unquenchable thirst for attention has taken him to this crossroads. And the good news is he's at three percent now and heading heading down to zero, right? The if you if you're an Alex Jones nutter and you don't need Vivek Ramaswamy, Trump's got plenty of room over at the ranch for you. Chris, the messenger. Don't blame the messenger. Fill us in. (laughs) This is like the least surprising media story, you know, bottom headline of the day. I don't know if people really call messenger president Richard Beckman mad dog, but I I don't think so. I'm into it if they do. We've told you before about Jimmy Finkelstein, the guy who sold the hill for a quadrillion dollars, started the messenger. He hired everybody. He threw money around uh, like crazy. He did all this stuff. And now, womp womp. Among the issues employees would like to see addressed, sources noted, are the and this is from the Daily Beast, are the outlet's recent partnership <clears throat> with an AI firm. The Messenger President Richard Mad Dog Beckman's suggestion to others that the site is out of the out of money and internal secrecy over the site's traffic. Additionally, employees wonder if editor in chief Dan Wakeford continues to be MIA, why he continues to be MIA especially with the increased bumps in the road for the site. So, you know, just that's a follow-up file for you folks who wondered what would become of the audacious effort at the messenger. And it sounds like it's non-super. Chris, this finally brings us to our style section. I realized we were totally wrong on what we needed to include in this because there's such an obvious thing, such an obvious thing. We thought when we were going to record that we didn't have an item for the style section. And, okay, I have been watching Beckham. Have yes. you watched this? We watched it. Both Jessica and oh. I enjoyed it. Okay. David Beckham's style. It is all over the gram. I'm sure you're not following these accounts, but it has taken off, and everyone's trying to figure out how to dress their man like Beckham. It is impeccable. And we need to link that this Esquire article, David Beckham's most influential style moments. And this GQ article, David, here's the secret. 
to David Beckham's impeccable style. And you can go inside his closet. It is, I mean, his style is fantastic. Is it? Okay. It is, I mean, yes. I yes. think I think if you look like David Beckham, I know and, I was about to say that. And too. you have and you have and you have three percent body fat, and you live your life as a, a beekeeper and fitness enthusiast with your hundred million dollars or whatever, or you know more. Whatever looks good, right? You can wear a Middle Eastern scarf draped loosely around your neck and a tank top, and people say, "Oh, what style?" Well, I'm here to tell you, fellas, if you don't look like David Beckham. Try a try a blue try a blue suit. See how it goes for you. Uh, well, I'm just you. telling you, this is all over the gram. All right. Well, I, I I will endorse the series and will say that it that I came away from it liking both of them more than Agree. I thought that I would. Agree. He seems like um, a he seems like a a sweet dummy who was really gifted, and uh, I believe that his intentions were good. Wait, I don't think he seems dumb. Really. No, I love him. And I, I, I love his mom. His mom at one point talks about adding someone to her kill list. We can love sweet dummies. There's nothing I you th- love him. But but I but I don't think I don't think he's I, I think he's seems like a good guy and he seems like a simple man. Maybe I'm just not fully able to focus my attention on yes, his exactly. I'm just not focused on his brain. The the abs the abs are are getting you. Yeah, they're they're a little distracting, and she's great too. I I like her. I agree. I came away with it. Came away with much better thoughts about both of them. All right, Chris. That brings us to our obsessions of the week, where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. And Chris, this made my blood boil. The Committee to Protect Journalists, you heard that right, the Committee to Protect Journalists, chronicled, is chronicling journalist casualties in the Israel-Gaza conflict. And they write that the Israel-Gaza conflict has taken a severe toll on journalists since Hamas launched its unprecedented attack on Israel on October 7th, and Israel declared war on the militant Palestinian group launching strikes on the blockaded Gaza Strip. So they tell us they have a list. Journalists reported killed, missing, injured, or detained. And on their list are several journalists from a network called Al-Aqsa TV, which is the Hamas television station and which is a U.S.-designated terrorist organization. And so they write of these people, a videographer for the Hamas-affiliated Al-Aqsa TV, Abu Atra, was killed along with his brother in an Israeli airstrike in Rafah in the southern Gaza Strip. Sami Al-Nadi, a journalist and director for the Hamas-affiliated Al-Aqsa TV, and so on and so forth. This is sick. Wow. So they're attributing terrorist casualties. They're counting as journalistic casualties of this war and hanging around Israel's neck and not responding to requests for comment about why it is they would be counting terrorists, designated terrorists by the U.S. government as journalists. This is sick. And when I saw this, I thought, you know, this is what Israel is up against in terms of the war, the international war for public opinion. 
is that do-gooder, supposed do-gooder organizations like the Committee to Protect Journalists are actually peddling Hamas propaganda. That is a real, when I saw the item, I did not even imagine that it could be as bad as it is, but that's pretty bad. Over to you. Two, just two things to think on. Just, I'm going to, I'm going to put these here and put them in the show notes and just two smart people talking about things worth thinking about. One is from Richard Gingras, who is vice president for news at Google. And he shares with us a really thoughtful piece, a good piece about, and this is more for journalists. So if there are, or if there are working journalists within the sound of my voice, I really encourage you to read this because you very often heard me talk about how this is a, a ground up solution to a demand side problem. And what should we be doing? We want, we have a tendency to want big external interventions to fix what's wrong with our industry. But what it will take, basically, is for us to think anew, act anew, and find better ways of being and doing. And Gingras is, is thoughtful, insightful, and it will provide food for thought. The other one that I want folks to take a look at is from Russ Roberts libertarian-ish, libertarian-ite economist and professor who has a, a very interesting Twitter thread that, that deals with questions about media trust, deals with questions about institutional trust, those same things that Gingras is dealing with, but in through the prism of after the October 7th attacks in Israel and what's going on in the world. I commend it to you as a way to think about, these are really hard questions, right? These defy simple answers, and we are faced with really hard choices to make as journalists, as citizens, and as as people. And I just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave those two here for you. I really hope you'll take a look. Chris, that brings us to my favorite time of the week, which is reader mail. And we have a note from Jonathan Falk in Westchester County, New York. And Jonathan flags a Wall Street Journal piece, why you might be drinking too much without knowing it. Social conventions on what represents a drink have evolved, and that is driving up our alcohol consumption and health risks. Okay, I already don't want to read this article. And he quotes from it. The reporter in this piece, Josh Zimbrin, writes, the climate might be partially to blame. The online wine database LiveX has found warmer growing seasons are producing grapes with more sugar and thus wines with more alcohol. The alcohol in the average Bordeaux red wine rose from 12.8% in the 90s to 13.8% in the 2010s, with reds increasing from 13.7% to 14.6%. And reds from Tuscany up from 13.7% to 14.2%. And jo Jonathan writes, that is, this is to be extremely charitable, complete BS. Growers decide when to harvest grapes. They could harvest them earlier with less sugar. Also, the alcohol content of wine can and is routinely lowered by adding water. The alcohol content of wine is exactly what the public demands. Robert Parker's 100-point system, which fam famously gave higher ratings to more alcoholic wines, had an effect, which is many multiples of this climate blame. Look how red wine grew much more than white wine. That's the Parker effect to a T. 
finally, let's do a little math. The difference between alcohol and a five ounce pour between 13.7 and alcohol alcohol and a 14.6% alcohol is is 0.045 ounces of alcohol. That's only 7.5% of the so-called standard uh, uh, 0.6 dosage standard. By contrast, a pour of even an extra ounce is almost twice that. So what do you think is causing this? Global warming or a bartender with a heavy pour looking for bigger tips? The whole article is fairly stupid because few people are really ignorant of their own drinking habits. But throwing global warming into this article is what makes it ink-stained fodder. I totally agree. The pores are huge, and and I appreciate that. But I do realize I am having two drinks when in one glass. Chris, that brings us to your favorite time of the week. Where I am forced to say something nice, but you shall lead us by example. What was your favorite item of the week? A delightful piece from The Age out of Melbourne, Australia. Straight bad out of Compton, why LA gang members are embracing the gentleman's game. And I most sincerely hope that this is on the level and this is not a monkey fishing kind of story because it is the story of former gangbangers who have taken up cricket in LA and with the Olympics coming to Los Angeles, that this will play a role in the, in the growth of cricket. And I didn't know about this. I found it fascinating. And this is the kind of long-form journalism that you love to see, that you find something interesting you, and you examine it through a bemused, uh, interested eye, and it's a gem. Chris, my favorite item of the week was an essay from Barry Weiss that relates to the New York Times's correction. And, you know, the correction, sure, they admitted error, but um, she notes, she, she compares the situation around falsely accusing Israel of blowing up this hospital in Gaza to what happened at the paper when the op-ed page published an an op-ed from Senator Tom Cotton saying, send in the troops to restore order after the George George Floyd riots. And she writes, in the case of Cotton, there was not a single correctable error in the piece. Yet in the course of 48 hours, jobs were lost and people were smeared and demoted simply for doing their jobs. In fact, the piece, which argued for the legality of the deployment of of National Guardsmen to restore order in American cities, held up better than I would have thought, especially in light of the use of National Guardsmen to quell the violent rioting in the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. In this case, publishing Hamas PR has led the paper to issue a soft non-apology, lamenting that the story should have been presented more carefully. And notably, there is no uproar inside the paper. There's, you know, it's not racked with protests in the same way. Nobody's talking about being hurt by violence in in the same way. And I just thought it was a wonderful essay about about the double standards at work in the mainstream. So that was my favorite item, and we will link it. And that is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. Leave a five-star review and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. 
Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Crutches. Thank you.